Well, last Sunday, Jason asked the question as we studied Nehemiah 8. Now that the walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt, that's in our book of Nehemiah, what does God's people being rebuilt look like? His answer? Living under God's word. Living under God's word. Hungering for his word. Understanding his word. And responding to his word. Well, today, friends, we have a second answer to that same question. What does it look like for God's people to be rebuilt? What does it look like? Friends, it's a direct result of living under God's word. And it's called confession. Confession. No life can be rebuilt. No church can biblically grow without confession. Confession is the fertile soil from which commitment to God and our faith in God grows. So as we look at our text today, we ask the question, how do we get from Nehemiah 8, sorrow for sin that was expressed in Nehemiah 8, and get to Nehemiah 10, where the people recommit themselves to God. They reaffirm their covenant with God. How do we get from chapter 8 to chapter 9? Friends, it's the pathway of confession in Nehemiah 9. But let's face it, as a people, as a society... We're pretty lousy at confession. We'll do and say just about anything to avoid confessing anything about ourselves that would admit culpability, guilt. By nature, we pass the buck. By nature, we blame others. We're all spin masters of some way, of some sort. How many times have you heard or how many times have you said, I'm so sorry, I hurt your feelings? You know what's coming next? But. But you really upset me. (laughs) But you were really rude to me. But you were so wrong. In other words, I'm sorry, kind of, but really, (laughs) my sin was justified. How about this one? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry if I've done anything wrong. (laughs) Oh, we're all busted there, aren't we? I'm so sorry if if I've done anything to upset you. (laughs) In other words, to quote Ken Sandy, obviously you're upset about something. I don't know what I've done. I don't know I've done anything wrong. But just to get you off my back, I'll give you a token apology. By the way, since I don't know whether I've done anything wrong... I certainly don't know what I should do differently in the future. Therefore, don't expect me to change. It's only a matter of time before I do the same thing. Guilty? Church, I suspect most of us are guilty. We need help. Not only with our confession to one another, but first and foremost and primarily with our confession to God. We're going to look this morning at what it means to biblically confess. You see, it's our confession to God that reveals, or our lack of confession to God, that reveals our understanding of God, our sin, and his mercy. Biblically confess. To whom do we confess? What do we confess? And what does confession do? How does it function in our lives? That is the heart of today's message. With that in mind, let us pray. Dear Lord, we are laid bare before our Creator and our Redeemer. The reality is, this morning, there is nothing we can hide from you. So, Lord, we don't want to pretend this morning. We don't want to pass the blame on. We want to know what it is to confess. But we also want to know what it is to receive mercy. So Lord, we ask this morning that you would open your word to us. And in doing so, you would open our hearts. We pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, as we have a long passage, I'm going to read our text in segments this morning. In segments 
as we go along. We're going to start with verses 1 through 3 in our text. It's really form a summary of the prayer confession that we're going to read this morning. So let's start with Nehemiah 9, verse 1 through 3. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. Church, last week, Jason took us through Nehemiah 8. Maybe recall the words from Nehemiah 8, verse 9, where we read, For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now it's the 24th day of the month. The Feast of Booths has ended. It ended on the 22nd day of the month. And now it's time to weep. The holy celebration has ended, but the sorrow of the people has not ended in our text. How is this sorrow expressed? We read it in fasting, in mourning, and confession as a people of God. It's time for God's people, the Jews, no foreigners, to humble themselves before God and his word, the book of the law, which has stirred such conviction in their hearts. And these three verses serve as a summary of what we're about to read in our text, this wonderful prayer. But they also serve to show us the seriousness, the desperate desperation of the people's confession. In the ensuing verse, verse 4 of Nehemiah 9, we read that the Levites, quote, cried with a loud voice. This, my friends, was the cry of distress. Have you ever been there? You know, when the conviction of the Lord, of his word, comes upon you, you are undone. If God doesn't intervene, if God doesn't have mercy, I am sunk. I am undone before a holy God. You see, this prayer of confession we're about to read is not a mere formality. It's not a mere ritual. Rather, it's visceral. It's visceral. It's heartfelt. It's emotional. See, church sharing, reciting words without conviction, it's not confession. Merely saying the right thing to get someone off your back or saying just the right prayer. It's not confession. What you're about to receive here in Nehemiah 9 is not some magic formula or incantation. It's a confession of the heart, of the people undone by God's holy word. Notice the, the inherent progression. For a quarter of a day, they read from the book of the law. The book of the law was their Bible at that time. How long? Quarter of a day. Let's do the math. Quarter of a day, quarter of 24 hours, six hours. They read the word. And you think this passage is long? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking when I looked at this passage <laughs> for my text. Oh, that ain't nothing. <laughs> six hours of reading God's word. Are we okay? Six hours of reading God's word <laughs> with no amplification. <laughs> six hours. And then what comes next? Confession. You catch it? Word of God heard. Word of God living and active. Convicting hearts of men and women. Leading to what? Confession and repentance. But something else I want you to see here in this summary, in these first really five verses. That's this. Who do the Jews confess to? And that leads to our next point. To whom do we confess? Look at verse 3. B, the second part of verse 3 there. It says, They made confession and worshipped who? The Lord their God. Then look at verse 4. Here in verse 4, we're introduced to two of our Levite friends from whom we met last week. 
Jeshua and Bani. And there are six friends who won't attempt to pronounce, although Jason did a great job of pronouncing them last week. I thought he was speaking in tongues at one point as he was cruising through all these Hebrew names. But we read these Levites, these priests who are leading this part of the service. And what does it say? And they cried with a loud voice. To whom? To their Lord, their God. And then we read in verse 5, we have another set of Levites leading worship, giving instructions to the congregating Jews, saying what in verse 5? Stand up and bless the Lord, your God, from everlasting to everlasting. Church, the one whom we worship is the one to whom we confess. Confession wasn't made to the Levites, the priests. It was made to the Lord. Confession is not just visceral, my last point. It's also vertical as well. You see, first and foremost, our confession is between you and God, between creature and the creator, between sinful man and holy God. It is vertical. This may be an obvious point to many of you, but some of you, you may have gotten a little nervous this morning when I said, we're going to talk about confession. Yeah, your, your heart started to beat a little more quickly. Some of you may have come from religious teaching or tradition in which confession is made to a holy man or to a priest. Please hear, confessing to Al, to myself, to Jose, to Jason, cannot, will not make your sins, excuse me, your prayers acceptable to God. It won't. We, as pastors, stand before a holy God just as you do. And we, too, need a mediator. And his name is Jesus. And his name is Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Well, does this mean that we never then confess our sins to one another? No, it doesn't mean that. Confession is not just vertical. It may also be horizontal, i.e., between one another as well. When we outwardly sin against one another, confession is needed. Not only for the sake of the person being offended, it's also needed for our hearts, lest our heart becomes hardened, right, or embittered. As we learned in our last sermon series, the book of James, remember James 5, verse 16? Let me read it to you. He says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In our church here, I think for the most part, we could say there would be a culture of openness, I think, at Palm Vista, a culture of transparency when it comes to our sin. Not just those social sins, sins then against another person, but even also the heart sins of our thoughts, of our attitudes as well. I'm glad for that. I really am. But sometimes... We confess, and there's a caution in play here. Yes, we want to confess to seek prayer at times, to seek counsel, right? To seek trustworthy accountability. Yes, that is needful. But sometimes I fear we speak about our sin almost just matter-of-factly, even sometimes flippantly. Perhaps whether we do this unconsciously or consciously, we may do it to project an air of humility. Oh yeah, I struggle with pride, anger, selfishness. Let me just list 18 other sins. And on we go. I know, and this grieves me, I can look back and know there's times I have confessed to other people. You know what? I think primarily to impress. I've confessed to impress. Then by my humility, or just to impress the fact that I have a keen grasp on my heart, <laughs> showing therefore 
that I really don't. I don't. Friends, that's not confession. That's pride. How easily we can fool ourselves. Because we've shared our sins with others, whatever the motive, we think therefore we have confessed our sins to God. Oh, may our confessions be of words of contrition and of gravity, not to impress, but because of the God to whom we confess. Not to impress, but because of the God to whom we do confess. What's the point in all this? Confession is made to God first and foremost. Merely sharing our sin and feelings with others is not biblical conviction. You see, just as confession is visceral and vertical, it's also verbal. It's verbal. That leads to the next point. What do we then confess to God? Confession is expressed. It's expressed in words and not mere feelings. Oh, acts of penitence like mourning and fasting as a manifestation of our sorrow, that indeed can be very appropriate. But it's not sufficient as we see in the text. Look at verse 1. That they were fasting, presumably sackcloth. But verse 1 in Nehemiah 9 is purposely joined with verse 2. They confessed their sin. But you say, Corey, but I feel so bad about my sin and what I've done. I mean, I admit that. Isn't that confession? What more do I have to do? Confess. Confess to God. Use words, whether they're audible or not. Put your feelings in words, and you will quickly find out what you're really sorry about. I mean, are you just sorry about the consequences of your sins? Are you just sorry that you got caught in your sin? Are you just sorry that you're going to lose that idol of yours that's giving you so much security? Are you sorry that people will now view you as less than perfect? People will view you now as a loser, as a hypocrite boy, as an unworthy friend. If that's your confession, you know what that is? That's called worldly grief. Or are you sorry because you have rebelled and offended a holy God? That is godly grief. I want to read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that drives this point home. We read this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Biblical confession comes from a godly grief that leads to life and that leads to freedom. You say, that doesn't sound like freedom to me. If you only knew, Corey, how much I sin. If I confessed all my sin, that's all I would be doing every day, is confessing sin. I'm at home all day with a house full of children. A big sinner trying to lead a bunch of small sinners. <laughs> Pure, purely hypothetical example for our, our family, and I'm sure you guys as well. You may say, well, Corey, I work with a team of happy pagans. It's like Wicca Incorporated every day. If I confessed, all I'd be doing is confessing my sin. See, to continually verbalize and confess, I want you to hear this. It's not just wallowing in your sin. You say, it's not? It just sounds so negative. I mean, after all, I'm in Christ. I'm forgiven. Why do I keep confessing my sin? What's the point? Well, if you're in Christ, you are forgiven. If you are a believer, you are forgiven. But confession is a lot more than just acknowledging our sin. It's also a confession of who God is. See, our confession of sin must have a backdrop. It must have a context. Confession without profession is no confession at all. I said again, confession without a profession of who God is is not confession at all, biblically, as we see in our text. What am I talking about? 
I'm talking about professing and knowing God's glory and grace. His glory and grace, which spills out on nearly every sentence in our prayer, Nehemiah 9. And we are getting to the prayer. Take a little time here. We're going to get there. Once we get there, we're going to cruise, okay? I want to set the stage for you here. See, in fact, the Hebrew word interpreted here in our text, Nehemiah 9, that Hebrew word interpreted, confess, is most often translated in the Old Testament as to give thanks, to give praise. See, confession is more than just verbalizing sin. It's a profession of belief in the one and almighty God whom we sin against. Confession, properly, biblically viewed, is not just wallowing, it's worshiping. Not just wallowing in our sin, it's worshiping. Now let's take a look, we're finally there, to the prayer. Let's read verses 6 through 15 first. And I want you to hear for yourselves this confession of God's glory and grace. I want you to notice as we read, I want want you to notice the word you. Okay, it's referring to God. In each verse, let us read, starting with verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God, who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to the offspring, to his offspring, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you were righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of this land. For you knew that they had acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statues, and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Oh, you get the point? God is the subject of every single sentence in confession that was just read in verses 6 through 15. So what is happening here? The people are confessing, they're reciting, they're rehearsing God's glory and grace showed to them. In verses 5 through 11, God's glory has been extolled. As they do what? As they remember. I'm like, God, their creator, but as they remember their birth their formation as a people of God. The Lord is extolled as creator in these verses. He's extolled as the promise-making God, the one who of all the people's nations chose Abram and made him Abraham, father of many nations. He said to you and your offspring I will bless, and you and your offspring will be a blessing to the nations. He made a covenant with Abram. He is a promise-making God. He's creator. He's the promised maker. He's also their savior. He's the one who delivered them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt and preserved his people and covenant. But he's not only the creator. He is the righteous one who is able 
and who has kept his promises, his covenant-making promises. Verse 8. But the prayer doesn't stop there. In verses 12 to 21, they rehearse God's grace to them in the wilderness as the newly formed people of God. They extol him for the one who guides them by his presence, a cloud by day, fire by night, as the one who has guided them by the giving of his law, the revelation of his very character to his people. They extol him as the one who provides for all their material needs, bread and water. Do you see it? The people of God are rehearsing their family history. How? By praying in summary form through Genesis and the book of Exodus. Friends, church, do you know your family history? I'm not talking about your physical blood family. I'm talking about your spiritual family. It's found right here in the word of God. As we read in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, 12 and 13, we read this. For we who are in Christ are no longer alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise. We are no longer strangers to God's promises. In other words, we're not strangers, but family as it pertains to the covenant promises of God. When a couple or a family is to adopt a child, it's often suggested, perhaps at times required, that the adoptive parents compose what is called a life book. It's basically a book for the adopted child that tells a story about the child's home country, their culture, and their story of adoption. See, later in life, if this child is adopted young, this book is to be presented to the child. Why? In order for them to connect with the past, to give them some personal history. You see, for all of us in Christ, we too have been adopted into this family. And we've been given a life book. It's not a history of our old culture, but of our new family. This is our personal history. We have our personal history right here in the Bible. The story of God as creator and savior is our story in Christ. It's your story and it's my story. You see, when we come to God in confession, we don't come as outsiders. You get it? We come as insiders. We come as those who are part of God's spiritual family. We come with a family history. But here's the bad news as well. We also come as sinners, as idolaters as well. That too is part of our family history, okay? So we read in verses 16 to 21 the story of the Jews' rebellion in the wilderness. And I want you to notice, even in this passage right here, I want you to notice God's covenant mercy through this phrase, and he did not forsake them. So let's read verses 16 now through 21. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you, oh, this is a key verse, my friends, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked 
nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Mm. Why did God not forsake his people? Because of his covenant mercies. Because you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Do you think sometimes that, you know, God is surprised at your sin? As we read in the text, surprised at your presumption, your stiff-necked rebellion? Do you really think he'll be surprised if you confess your sin to him? If you confess that you haven't held up your side of the bargain? Oh, man, Corey, I'm so surprised. I thought differently. What? No, that's not what God's saying. You say, oh, I don't want to admit that. I just, I don't, I don't want to know what God thinks. Friends, we already know what God thinks about your sin. That you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. How do I know? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. That's how we know what God thinks. He already knows it. He already knows a sin before you confess it. He died for you, for all those who repent and trust in him as Lord and Savior. Even when God's people received the promised land, even after those years in the wilderness, they made it into the promised land, they still sinned, and God showed his readiness to forgive them upon their confession and cry for mercy. I want to alert you to a pattern of what we're about to read here. Here's the pattern we see in this prayer and throughout the Bible. God's grace. Next, people's sin and rebellion. Then, God's judgment. The people cry out, and God saves. We see this pattern. We see this cycle over and over. And we see it right here in verses 22 through 31, which I'm about to read. Starting at verse 22. And you gave them the kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children, part of the covenant promise, as the stars of heaven. And you brought them into the land, part of this covenant promise, that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their land, with their, into their hand, with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. The verse 26, there's God's grace. Here's man's response in the judgment to come. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, judgment, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard from heaven. And here's his mercy. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after that, they had rest. After that rest, They did evil again before you. Here's a judgment. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried to you, here's the mercy, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet, they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder 
and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the people of the lands, i.e. judgment. The verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. To quote one commentator, God's people lacked nothing and appreciated nothing. They lacked nothing from God, as you see in our passage, and they appreciated nothing. God's grace is met with the ingratitude of his people. Do you see yourself in the story yet? In verses 26 to 28, we see this intensifying cycle of God's judgment. The people, their fickle cry, cry for mercy, followed by God's covenant mercy on full display. Does that sound familiar? Read the book of Judges, and you'll see just that. Just don't read the book of Judges. Look at your own life as well. In verses 29 through 31, we see the story of First and Second Kings recounted as the prophets are rejected. And that leads to the final cry and confession. Not of past generations, but the very Jews who are praying this prayer. And what we're about to read and see in the following verse, verses 32 and following, is a personal and familial confession of sin, but a confession in light of God's covenant mercies. Not only do we confess God's glory and grace towards us, we confess our sin in light of God's glory and grace. You see, in the end, confession is not just about getting historical. It's about getting personal, about personal ownership of our sins, of our trespasses. It's about finding, embedding our story in the story of God's people, in the story of redemption, which we've just read. See, notice up until verse 31, the Jews are using the language of the third person. They were disobedient, right? They sinned. But, but look at here, verse 32. The language suddenly changes to the first person, first person plural, as they arrive in their prayer at their current day situation. Let us now read verses 32 to 37. Now therefore, our God, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we, we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your good, great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield Goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Catch verse 33 For you have dealt faithfully, and we, not just they, we have acted wickedly. Owned by God, they now own their own sin. But you may ask, why am I responsible for the sins of those who have gone before me? You're not. You and I have enough sin of our own to own up to. Then you may ask, what's the purpose of recounting the sins of past generations? I already feel guilty enough. Please don't miss this. As the Jews contemplate their current state, i.e. slavery, former exiles, they acknowledge that they not only suffer 
the consequences, the ramifications of the sins of their forefathers. They also realize they share and suffer in the same malady of sin, rebellion and ingratitude. So as they confess, they're saying, that's not me. Yeah, that is me. It is. But they also realize, not only do they share the same sin of those who came before them, oh, but they share in the same covenant mercies as well. That is the linchpin of confession right there. Not only do they share in the same sin as those who came before them, but they share in God's same covenant mercies. It is theirs as well. See, in aligning themselves with those in the past, they are throwing themselves on God's mercy. The mercy of God who has bound himself to them in a covenant promise. The Hebrew word translated confess, it literally means to throw, to cast. You ever seen those persons who dress up in that fabric in those Velcro bodysuits, right? And they fling themselves on a Velcro wall like a fly sticking to a windshield. You know what I'm talking about? Go running, springboard, jumping, right up against the wall, and they stick. Church, that is a picture of what it means to cast yourself on God, to cast yourself on the mercy of God. But you won't cast yourself on the mercy of God if you don't know the character of God, if you don't know that your confession will stick. But let me tell you, if you're in Christ, your confession will will stick. God's mercy will stick. To put it another way, confession is the very pathway of this undeserving, ever-abounding mercy of God that leads us to repentance. Oh, and that brings us to our final point. What does confession do? How then does confession work? How does it function in our lives? Well, it leads us to mercy. Oh, a mercy that sticks. In other words, it positions us to receive mercy. In other words, it emboldens us to ask for mercy. Yes, in our sin. Notice the words which are sandwiched between the confession of God's mighty covenant and steadfast love. In verse 32, in their confession of sin, in that same verse, we hear these words. We hear this petition. Let not all the hardship seem little. Oh, Lord. Let not the hardship seem like a little thing. In other words, God, notice our hardship. Notice our suffering. Notice that we are slaves. Have mercy. The fruit of the land which he promised goes to another. Have mercy and fulfill your promises. And fulfill your promises that we might be a blessing to the nations. Do you feel the tension? See, how could they make such a request? How could they dare to hope that their condition would be any better than that of their current situation or those who came before them? How could the Jews who were praying hope that God would fulfill his covenant promise to make them a blessing to the nations instead of slaves in a land not their own? How could they go in verse 1 from the ashes of mourning to asking for mercy in verse 32? How could they do it? By their confession. Confession of what? Of their sin. Oh, and of God's grace and covenant mercies. Do you have that hope as you go to God this morning? We of all people as Christians should. Oh, we must have that hope. We come to this text, church, not as those who are under the old covenant, but those who are under the new covenant. We come, in other words, as Christians. You know what? We have one more stanza to add to this poetic prayer. One more stanza to add to this prayer. It's the person 
and work of Jesus Christ. You see, we don't stop at First and Second Kings in our confession. You know where we go? We go to the Gospels. We go to Jesus. We find fulfillment of this very book of the law that they were reading. All that we have read in this prayer, the covenant promise made to Abraham, or the deliverance of God's people from the bondage of Egypt, the giving of his law, the judges or the saviors he raised up, the kings, the prophets, the land, they all pointed to one person, Jesus Christ. For he is our creator. He is our deliverer. He is our law fulfiller. He is our savior. He is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. And he is our place where we meet with God. Jesus Christ is a definitive, conclusive, crowning act of God's grace and mercy towards us. You see, Christ kept the law that we could not keep. It is Christ who took on the curse of sin for us as covenant breakers by dying on the cross. Confession means going back to the cross where we see God's righteous justice and judgment. Meet mercy. That's where we go. We're on the cross. Christ righteously judged our sin and rebellion, but mercifully sent his son to die in our place. Confession means going back to the story of redemption found in scripture. It means owning our sin, oh, and finding grace and mercy. Have you given in to cynicism this morning? You say, what difference will it make if I confess my sin? Will things really be any different? I've confessed this sin a thousand times. Do you think God is even listening and cares anymore? And if he cares, is there any mercy left for me? Oh, church, there is mercy left for you. Mercy abounding for you. Mercy for forgiveness and for change. This past week, I served on jury duty. A man had been charged with first-degree murder, was about to be put on trial. I sat across from him, looking at his face. I was a potential juror whom he knew nothing about. I, along with 59 other in the jury pool, were those who would potentially decide his future and his fate, humanly speaking. Oh, friends, that's no place to be as that man. When you confess, you aren't confessing to an unknown judge or unknown jury. You are confessing, as we read in verse 17, to a God who is ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. See, the question is, is not, will you receive mercy? The question here is, will you confess? Will you confess? If you have any desire this morning to confess to God his majesty and his worth, if you have any desire this morning to cry out to him, if you have any desire to confess to God the wickedness of your ways and turn to him this morning, this is your story that we have just read. How do I know? It's our natural sinful tendency is to spend our lives trying to mask our sin and hide from God's holiness. So if you have a desire this morning to confess, you can be confident that this is God's mercy at work in you right now. And it's this confession and this mercy which leads you to repentance. The last verse of our text, Nehemiah 9, 38, concludes this way. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document of the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Because of this, 
Because of what? Because of God's righteous judgment? Because of our wickedness? Because of God's mercy? We make a firm covenant. We make a covenant, a pledge of faithfulness. Know what this is? This is a language of repentance, of renouncing sin and committing yourself and your ways to holiness, to God, to righteousness. Al's going to talk about that covenant, that reaffirmation, next week in Nehemiah 10. But you know what? You don't have to wait till next week to confess and to repent. Will you confess and make that pledge of faithfulness? As God's people this morning, yet, yet again, you're going to have the opportunity to do that right now. One way that we confess is through prayer. There's another way that we confess as well. It's through the Lord's Supper. It's called communion. And we're going to quietly transition right now to take the Lord's Supper as God's people. But please hear this. Just be quiet just a moment. This is a holy moment. Because we're not finished yet. This may be the most important part of the sermon. And that is our response as we appropriate God's mercy and what we have just heard. And we confess. You see, in communion, we are confessing verse 32. That it is God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love. How has he done that? How has he kept the covenant that we cannot keep? Through his son, Jesus. Communion is the way in which God has ordained for us as his people to remember God's broken body and blood shed for us. What we're about to do is affirm, to affirm that his story is our story. We're about to affirm that his mercy is our now mercy. That his covenant of faithfulness is now our covenant of faithfulness. You know what? We do that as a body, corporately. Those who are God's people bound together in covenant mercy. With a shared history and a shared future as well. If you're not one of God's people this morning, that is, you do not confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Would you please refrain from taking the elements as they are passed? But if you're not one of His, I appeal to you this morning to confess Jesus as your only Savior and cry, cry out to Him for mercy right now. He knows the penitent. He listens to their prayer for our God. He is a merciful God.